June 28, 2017, uh, I had a dream and a man visited me in my dream and I'm pretty convinced it was an angel. Um, this is not a spiritual imagination like I talked to you three and four Sundays ago. I saw this. It, it happened to me. And, um, angels appear in dreams sometimes in the Bible. Jacob saw an angel in a dream. Daniel saw numerous angels in a dream. Joseph, the husband of Mary, three times uh, had an angel visit him in a dream. Mary was awake when Gabriel came and talked to her, but Joseph was asleep every time. I think probably because he was a hardworking man. And so he was always asleep, and that's when the angel came to him. It's a legitimate biblical thing that happens, and, and I think this happened because in my dream early that morning, uh, five years ago, a, a very tall, maybe like seven foot or taller man came. He was dressed all in white. If you want to know what he looked like, I would say he was Hispanic, but he was as cut and chiseled as a, of a man as I'd ever seen, but really... What his physical appearance didn't matter at all to me because I was so struck by his confidence and his boldness and his power. He was full of what the Bible calls zeal, like energetic. I mean, his guy was, this guy was beautiful, beautiful, but, but amazingly, shockingly strong. I can't describe it. He stuck his finger in my face and he said, the Lord trusts you. Some. <laughs> and the sum was just perfect. It was just perfect because it was encouragement and challenge at the same time. That's, and that's all he said. He said, the Lord trusts you. Some. And then he reached behind his back and he pulled out a bullwhip. Indiana Jones bullwhip. And whipped me in the face. Just And as the whip was unrolling, coming toward my face, Everything went into super slow motion, like in a movie where the camera goes around the bullet as it's flying through the air. Uh, this whip is very slowly unfurling toward my face. And as it gets close, on the end of the whip, I see a black Sharpie. And light as a feather, just almost nothing, the whip, the Sharpie, makes a mark on my forehead, and he's gone. Dream's over. I woke up instantly. And I woke up knowing immediately what Bible story that is. It's Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel 9, 1 to 11. I heard the Lord shout with intense thunder, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, and each bring a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came, each with his battle axe in his hand. Angels with battle axes really turns me on. I just, that's just so awesome. That's just so awesome. Six angels show up with battle axes, and then another one, a seventh man, shows up among them clothed with linen, and he had a writer's inkhorn at his side. So I know that most of you would know that 200 years ago on the American frontier, that the, the frontiersmen and the cowboys and, and whatever, the soldiers, they carried their gunpowder in a cow horn, right? It's called a powder horn. And they put a cork in the end, and then they'd put it in their muzzle and a musket, and they'd pack it down. And So they would carry... Their gunpowder, we know what a powder horn is, but an inkhorn is long gone. So in the ancient world, if a scribe or a writer, they'd write with a bird feather, a quill, or a stick that had been carved into a stylus. But they would keep their ink in a bottle, except when they were traveling, they would use a little goat horn that had been hollowed out with a stopper, and they would carry ink, the scribes would carry ink with them in an inkhorn. It's exactly like a 
powder horn for ink. So this angel, the seventh angel shows up with an ink horn. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. This is in the temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel is seeing this in a spiritual vision. Now the glory of God of Israel had moved up from the cherub where it had been to the entrance of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who grieve and lament over the abominations that are done within it. God tells the scribe angel, the writer, to mark the forehead with ink of all the men who grieve and lament, who wail and cry over the sins done in Jerusalem. And then as I listened, he, that's God, says to the others, that's the six angels with the battle axes, follow him through the city and kill everyone. Show no pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. And they said to them, defile the temple, fill the courtyard with corpses, go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. And while they were out killing, I was all alone and I fell face down on the ground and cried out, O sovereign Lord, will your fury against Jerusalem wipe out everyone left in Israel? And he said to me, the sins of the people of Israel and Judah are very, very great. The entire land is full of murder. The city is filled with injustice. They are saying the Lord doesn't see it. The Lord has abandoned the land. So I will not spare them. I will not have pity on any of them. I will fully repay them for all they have done. And then the man in linen clothing who carried the writer's case reported back and said, I have done as you commanded. So Ezekiel is seeing this in a spiritual vision, but it actually came true in historical physical fact about 500 years later in 70 AD when the Roman army showed up at Jerusalem about 35 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. The Roman army came to Jerusalem and they killed every single person. They destroyed the city to the point that their hatred for the Jews and Israel was so violent by that point because the Israelites had rebelled against them so many times that they went and they didn't just kill every person, but they knocked every stone in the city walls and the buildings off of every other stone, except for what's left of the Wailing Wall, if you know what that is. There is not one historical record of any Christian church had been around 35 years by that point. There's not one historical record of any Christian dying in that attack of the Roman army. In fact, some of the New Testament books are written after that happened, but because those apostles weren't there anymore, it was a non-event to them. The Holy Spirit had moved them out. And God is telling Ezekiel, five, roughly 500 years ahead of time, says, when this happens, you need to know it's not just the Romans hating the Jews. This is me taking my vengeance on a people who've rejected my son. But I will save those on whom is my mark. And he did. That event, the destruction of Jerusalem, is a prophecy of God's judgment at the end of the world against all of us. Not just the Jewish nation, not just Jerusalem, but the entire world. This is going to happen again. And it's in Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth of the sea or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 
And I heard the number of all those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So here we have again this mention of people being marked on their forehead by God, and angels specifically. Revelation 9 mentions it again. This is Revelation 9, verses 2 to 4. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit from the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit, and out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth had power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. If you were around a year ago, this is the group of locust, scorpion, demon things that come up out of the pit of hell and their, their king is named Apollyon or Abaddon the Destroyer. Do you remember that sermon when I talked to you about complaining? That complaining opens our lives to these guys and you do not want these guys in your house. You do not want them in your marriage. You do not want them in your life. Don't complain. You can go to SoundCloud and listen to that one if you want. But here we have... A third reference, count them, one, two, three, of God marking our foreheads. Hello? And the angel gives these locust, scorpion, demon things power to go all over the earth and harm everything except those that have the mark of God on their forehead. So we have three references of God marking foreheads. Now let's go to Revelation 13. And we have the famous passage that everybody knows, 666. He, that's the, uh, the Antichrist, the beast, was given power to cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. The Antichrist, at the very end, makes an idol and everyone must bow down to it. And if, if we don't renounce Jesus and bow down to his idol, then he has power to kill us. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. It is man's number. His number is 666. All right. So I suppose most everybody knows that passage about the mark of the beast and 666. And so this Man at the end times who will raise himself up as God and force the entire world to worship him. Um, he also puts a mark on people's foreheads. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name, that's the name of Jesus, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Four times. God's mark, God's name mentioned on our foreheads. One time, Mark of the Beast. Four times God, one time Mark of the Beast. Continuing on in chapter 14, verses 9 to 12, a third angel followed him and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and there is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. All right, so it's true that there is coming a one-world government religion. Religion and government will become the same thing. We can see, even in the last three years, how much stuff has gotten 
global and how thing, events have been test runs for how a global government and a global economy and a global religion might function. It's not really all that hard to imagine. We're not that far away from this. The passage says it's going to get bad, and Jesus warned us that it is. But the church, for decades, has focused on, highlighted on, the mark of the beast. When I was a kid, it was, well, there's going to be a, an ID card. And then it was, there's going to be a barcode tattooed on our foreheads. And then it was, there's going to be a microchip implanted under the skin in our foreheads. And now Elon Musk says in five years he's going to be able to collect, connect your brain directly to the cloud and we won't need computers. I don't know. We can scoff at that, but what else did we scoff at that's already real? So I just want to point this out. I mean, the church is majoring on what is the mark of the beast. I want to make sure I don't take it. How about, let's, let's think about it this way. God says four times, I want to write my name on your forehead. Two times the mark of the beast is mentioned. How about, let's make sure the name of Jesus is written on your forehead so that there isn't any room for a mark of the beast. <laughs> I know it's not worth laughing at because it's going to get really, really bad. But the antidote to make sure that I don't get deceived in the end times and take the mark of the beast and what if, it's very clear. It says the qualification to receive the mark of the beast, you have to qualify for it. It says the qualification is you must bow down and worship his idol. You're not going to accidentally do that. If you do that, you will be making a choice to save your own skin. It's not going to accidentally happen that you bow down and worship somebody's idol. Hello. You don't need to be scared about what is the mark. You're not going to get tricked because you have to qualify. He's not going to trick you into taking it. He's going to make you publicly take it. You must renounce Jesus Christ and say, I am God. I, I don't discount the fact that it could be a microchip, although I think that will be old technology just even in a couple of years from now. Um, I don't discount that, that something really bad is coming. And we have these warnings here. God says, you're going to have to really endure. But I think that, that the answer and how we should think about it all is, let's just make sure that God's mark is on my forehead. Because somebody's mark is going to be on your forehead. One or the other is going to be there. And you also must qualify for God's mark to be on your forehead. And Ezekiel told us what the qualification was. He actually, he heard God say what it was to the angels. What is it? That we grieve and lament for the wickedness done in our city. Do you? Do you weep for the lost and the broken and the destruction of American culture and the lies that our kids are being told and the empty, worthless, excruciating lives that people in Walmart are living. We must qualify for God to want to put his mark on us and say, that one's mine. And the qualification is grieving. Being brokenhearted for the sins of America and LeGrand. We have a Bible story where we see how this happened. It's the story of Lot in Genesis. God dispenses judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their extreme wickedness. 
He's going to rain down fire and brimstone on them. In the natural, that probably looked like a volcanic eruption that buried the city. But it was God. God says, it's me doing it. This isn't the processes of nature. This is me. But there was one man and his family in there that God pulled out of the city so that they didn't die with the rest of them. And in Second Peter, Peter tells us why Lot qualified to be removed from the city before judgment happened. He rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed. So everybody say distressed. By the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented, say tormented, tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Lot was marked on his forehead because he grieved over the sins done in his city. He was not just not like them. He didn't just not participate with them. It broke his heart. He was distressed. He was tormented by the wickedness that he saw, and it tore him up. And God saw that and said, that was mine. When destruction comes, we're going to pull him out because he's got my mark on him. James 4, 8 to 10 says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is written to the church because the next verse says, brothers. A previous verse says, as believers in Jesus Christ, this is us, God's command to us. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's the qualification to receive the mark of God instead of the mark of the beast. I also just want to highlight the fact that anger is not a qualification to receive God's mark. Being angry at the Democrats does not qualify you for God's mark. Being angry at the Republicans or hating Biden or Trump or Obama or whoever you hate will not get God's mark on your forehead. James 1.20 says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when you learn about drag queen story hour for preschoolers, when you learn that two weeks ago a judge in Texas ordered a 10-year-old boy taken from his father's custody and castrated because his stepmom thinks he should be a girl, not even his birth mother. When you think about the irreversible surgical mutilation of our daughters by the thousands who are being lied to that they can be boys. When you see the filthy homeless camps along the freeway in Portland and now in LaGrande, You think about the staggering numbers of babies murdered in America. When you know about the cheating in our elections and the government corruption beyond measurement and description, the hordes of people spilling across our national borders, a so-called healthcare system that earns mind-blowing profits while poisoning millions of people. When you watch the hateful destruction of our beloved country by the raging of the lawless and the plundering of the powerful, You see high school kids destroying their lives as they party in hell's waiting line. You think about the worldliness of the people in the church. Uncountable children growing up without basic care of mom and dad and food and hygiene and safety. You think about global suffering and individual suffering beyond our capacity to comprehend. When the wickedness and perversity and blasphemy and evil and misery of the world comes to mind... 
You can be selfishly uninvolved and uncaring and just go about your life. I've got another ball game to watch. Or you can be overwhelmed and intimidated and defeated and move off to a mountain or a monastery to escape the world. You can choose to self-righteously judge the unclean and the unworthy. You can throw a few dollars at a charity or a church to ease your conscience a little bit. You can waste many hours of your life watching or listening to media reports that make you scared or angry and then still not do very much of anything to do about it. You can listen to mocking and dishonoring humor or ranting and get caught up in the scoffing. Or you can get really, really angry and you can go to the school board meeting or the polls and you can take fierce action, but your fleshly anger is just playing right into the devil's hand. If you are truly filled with the Holy Spirit, if you have the mark of God on you, I just want to remind you, he's not the spirit of anger, he's the spirit of peace. But he is not the spirit of passivity. When he prays, he groans beyond words. Romans eight twenty six, The spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Those who groan, who pray past the point of words in brokenhearted love and distress for what's going on in our country, in our city, in our schools, you have the mark of God, and the mark of God is what makes you groan beyond words. Corey Russell says that Holy Spirit praying is praying beyond words. It's tears and cries and groans. He repeatedly uses the phrase guttural intercession. <laughs> if you don't know who Corey Russell is, I highly recommend him to you. IHOP KC and Upper Room. I am in a season where the Lord is breaking me so thoroughly like nothing else before in my life that I cry just about every day. And that has never been true, not even two years ago. It took a lot of storing up stuff to break down in tears. But now it's, it's truly almost every day. And uh, by far, the most, of, most of my tears are love for God. It happens in worship as I'm praising Him. Yesterday it happened as I'm driving home from the church last night. And I had a song on and I was getting excited and I was, I was just loving the Lord and I... I was crying because I was so excited. <laughs> this morning it happened, first service worship, when Kim started singing, turn your eyes on Jesus. It's just, the tears just came. By far, most of what I, what I cry is, is good brokenness. It's just the Lord tenderizing my heart. A lot of my tears, second largest, I guess, reason, is my own heartbreak, my own situation and I'm crying out my feelings. But this is not what this scripture is about. It's not us crying in love or thankfulness. It's not us crying our own feelings and our own circumstances to the Lord. This is us weeping the tears of God for coming judgment, for ruined lives, for a compromised church, a tainted bride. A nation and a world rebelling against God. It's we're weeping for the honor of his name. 
for the billions that are lost to hell for a planet full of broken hearts. So sometimes it's tears, but actually with me, this, this verse about the Holy Spirit groaning in us, that gets used a lot by charismatic and Pentecostal teachers to talk about tongues, but it's not. That's not what that is. Sometimes if I'm not crying in appreciation and thankfulness and deepest adoring love for the Lord or for my own pain and circumstances and broken heart, when I'm praying for the church or you all as individuals or just the lost in the world, a lot of times it's not tears, it's, it's groaning. And the old time Pentecostals used to talk about travail. I've done that before. Just a couple of times. It's been really rare. But I get, I, I get a David Hogan growl a lot. Like, ah, Jesus, do something about this. Like, I go into Walmart and my chest just twists up in a knot looking at these people whose lives are so destroyed. Fatherlessness after fatherlessness after fatherlessness. Generations of people just destroyed, and you can see it in their health. You can see it in their clothing. You can see it in their hair. You can see it with the girls holding hands, and, and it's just their lives are destroyed. And it just it torments me to go to Walmart in heartbroken agony for these people who are so lost. And their lives are so ruined. And I was like, Jesus, we must have you. You must move. There is no answer to this. At, even in LaGrande, we live in Mayberry compared to the rest of the nation. And America is a great place compared to the rest of the world. And dear God, we're broken. There is no hope but Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus is all the hope we need. Sometimes there's nothing I can do. I just I pray all the words I know how to pray, and then I just moan. Now, for those of you who would like me to say this, I'll say it. I highly recommend Benny Johnson's book, The Happy Intercessor. B-E-N-I, you all need to get it and read it. If you're a serious prayer, if you actually pray more than just in your car on your way to work, you need to read The Happy Intercessor. It's a great book. It's about the power of joy and the strength that comes when we are praying in faith that it won't just all be crying and weeping and whining at God. Do something about this. Hello? But this is biblical too. This is Holy Spirit also. And it is the qualification for what God says, I'm going to write my name on you. I, I want to identify with you when you cry my tears. So I'm not talking about wringing our hands in faithlessness and just whining to God that he fix our problems. The power of joy in prayer is exceedingly important, and there is a time to celebrate in faith even when I don't feel like it. There's also a time to let myself be moved in mourning when I don't feel like it. So I say spend hours with Jesus, and I mean hours. And you beat your breast for your own sin because you're a terrible hypocrite if you're mad at the rest of the world and you haven't repented for your own. And then cry in brokenhearted love for your family and your neighbors and your country. Find his love and compassion for those lost in the lies. And then go out and take action for Jesus and the gospel. I'm not talking about spending all your time in the prayer closet wringing your hands and crying about the situation of the world and never doing anything about it. Resist. 
Stand up, speak up, fight. But not in your flesh, not in anger, not in talk radio and Fox News kind of righteousness. Hello. Conservatism isn't going to save America. Jesus is going to save America. But we have to resist. We can't just, we cannot just pray. There has to be a confrontation. Elijah provoked a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. I don't think God would have answered by fire if he'd stayed in his cave and just prayed for God to move. Hello. John the Baptist provoked a confrontation with the Pharisees. Jesus provoked a confrontation with the Pharisees. The apostles provoked a confrontation with the Pharisees and the idol temple in every city they went to. They spoke up in public to the crowd. John the Baptist denounced Herod for his sin, not to Herod, to the crowd. It was not wrong for me to stand up and say, President Biden is a wicked man. That's not ungodly. That's what John the Baptist did with Herod. Now you all got nervous on that one. The smiles disappeared. We'll provoke a confrontation. In public, stand up on the job. Go to the school board meeting. Don't let them tell six-year-olds they can change their gender. We vote. We campaign. We speak up. We counter the lies publicly, forcefully, but not in anger, in the peace of Jesus and the power of the gospel. Not in fleshly conservatism. Be salt. Be light. Stick out. Draw attention. We have so many angry American Christians, anxious American Christians, and I really think the answer is because you spend more time listening to conservative media than you do listening to the Holy Spirit, and then even when you do listen to the Lord, you don't go do anything about it. You're just fearful and stressed. So I'm going to stick my head in the sand and go to another ball game. Turn your damn TV off, and I mean that literally. Turn it off and go walk through your neighborhood and pray for your neighbors by name. You don't need to watch another ball game. If you don't know your neighbors, walk through your neighborhood and pray till you do know them. Pray for your coworkers. I don't know, your classmates, whatever. Help me, Jesus. Jesus said that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah prayed and prayed and prayed and spent time with God and time with God and time with God, but he didn't just sit in a cave and pray and weep and mourn about the terrible situation. In fact, when he did that, God rebuked him. But he got out of his cave and he took action and he provoked a response. And he forced the people to choose Yahweh God or Baal. Jesus said John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah and he did the same thing. John confronted the Pharisees and he confronted Herod publicly in front of the people and said, they are lying to you, don't go that way. Before Jesus comes back a second time, the church as a whole, not one person or not even a group of small group, but the whole church is going to come in the spirit and power of Elisha, who had double the anointing of Elijah. We're going to be coming in the forerunner spirit that John the Baptist had, but double that anointing. And it's not just going to be 
exciting meetings in this church building. It will be on the street, and there will be changed lives, and there will be mass deliverances, and mass healings, and mass salvations, and the entire nation and the entire world are going to get saved, but it will come through a confrontation of people who have spent time with God with broken hearts over the condition of the lives of the people that we know God loves and does not want to judge and, but judgment must come, and so we're standing and interceding, and we go out and we tell them, we preach them the gospel no matter how much they hate us. Yes. Come on. Anger is not going to win a single soul into the kingdom of heaven. Fear is not going to win a single soul into the kingdom of heaven. So we cannot be quiet and passive and overwhelmed and defeated because we're afraid, and we cannot go out in fleshly anger and scream at the school board, those who God will use to change the world are those who've spent hours, days, weeks, months in private with him, joining him in his weeping. Those are the ones. I'll write, I'll write Jesus' name on your forehead and send you out shining. So, vote for biblically righteous people and laws. Fast from the world's media and get with God and pray until you understand that this is the only way it's going to change. Repent of your own sin and your agreement with Jezebel and root out every compromise with sin and then wail for your children and your grandchildren's world. Groan in prayer until God answers with fire. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, your blood, your death, your resurrection is our only hope. Because the problems in our culture and in our nation are too big for any other solution but you. Political involvement isn't going to win the day. A lazy, compromised church isn't going to win. Lord, our distress and our anger about what's being done around us isn't going to change anything. Lord, I wish I could fight. I wish I could pick up a sword and start lopping off heads. I really do. But that's not what you've called us to. Lord, on behalf of your church, I repent. I repent of anger. I repent of laziness, worldliness, Lord. Make us holy. Get us out of the world and the world out of us. Lord, you have to draw your people. You have to draw every individual in this room and all, and all of us together into your presence, into prayer, into your word, in the leading of your spirit, Lord. Lord, we're not led by Ben Shapiro and Sean Hannity. We're led by Jesus Christ. Lord, I present this upcoming election to you. In Jesus' name, we lift our county and our state and our nation to you, Lord, and we ask for your will to be done and your kingdom come. Lord, I pray that you would put your people in the positions that you want in government. I pray for righteous men and women who will not bow to the lies and the pressure of the money and the corruption and the lobbyists and the system. 
Lord, who will stand up and say, we're not allowing that in this school. We're not allowing that in our county. Lord, I pray for our county commissioners and our school boards and our teachers and the Grand City Council election, Lord, and, and for our governor race. Lord, I pray that you would not give us over to wickedness, but that you would restore righteousness. I pray that the people who know you and know their God would stand up and do exploits. That we would boldly speak the truth in every arena. Well, forgive us for being cowards. Forgive us for being selfish. Forgive us for not allowing our hearts to be broken. Just going about our own schedule and our own needs and our own time and our own everything. Lord, open our eyes at work and at school and in the store. Open our eyes to the suffering around us, to the lonely people, those that are so broken, who need you and we have you. Move us, Lord. Move us in brokenhearted intercession to speak up and to pray and to move in concern, in the compassion of Jesus Christ for those that are physically broken, those that are addicted, those that are full of evil spirits and anxiety and depression and hatred and those that are so afraid those that are so alone, those that didn't have fathers to love them and discipline them, Lord. Those that have been taken hostage by the propaganda and the lies of the world. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in Oregon and all the Pacific Northwest. I pray that you would do a miracle that would shock us, even as we ask for it, Lord. If you told us what it was, that we would be amazed. Lord, you've done it before. We ask for it again. The revival sweep our state, sweep our region and our nation, Lord. You've done it so many times. The supernatural move of the Holy Spirit that restored righteousness in families and made your church holy again and saved millions out of the world. Lord, in the, in the Hebrides in the 50s, you, you put the entire, an entire town on their knees all in one moment. And they, people didn't even know why. They're just on their knees on the roadside crying out for forgiveness for their sin when three minutes before they weren't even thinking about it. Lord, in, in Wales, you gathered people to church at 4.30 in the morning and they didn't know why. Hundreds of people just showed up. Lord, you can do it in Portland. You can clear out the tent camps and put them in the street singing and dancing sober and healed. You can establish righteousness in Salem and Olympia and Washington, D.C., you can do it, Lord. We ask for it in Jesus' name. I, Lord, in Jesus' name, I ask that you restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and their children to the fathers. Lord, it's the root of everything is undisciplined and unloved kids for generations, untrained, unloved, undisciplined, untaught. I pray that you would move on the heart of every father to repent to their kids and mend what they've broken to bring discipline and training and love and ownership and care and authority. And Lord, I pray you'd move on the heart of every child that, that are still young and those that are 80 to repent of their rebellion against their parents. 
the rejection of what their parents did teach them. Lord, I ask you for an unimaginable miracle. I ask you for res- that you would restore every single relationship in our entire country. Every father to every child, every child to every father, every ex, every broken family. Lord, I know you can't go back and get people remarried who have already moved on and married, but you can restore in complete, clean conscience forgiveness. Every person to every other person. You can do it, Lord. You can grant repentance and forgiveness. And start with us in this room right here. Lord, we repent, we repent, we repent, and we forgive Forgive, forgive. And we will allow ourselves to be brokenhearted and weep your tears and get out of our selfish little lives and be moved by your spirit to actually love our neighbor. Yes. 